Well, kia ora. Catherine Dyer, uh, the climate correspondent for the Kaka. Welcome in to the Kaka. Great to see you again. Morena. So um, every week um, we look to get a, a wrap-up of the news, which we put out to all subscribers, paying and non-paying, a wrap-up of what's happening in the world of you know climate action, climate inaction, uh, the latest research on the climate itself, uh, what our government's doing or, or not doing, um, and not just the um, executive arm of government, but also the commissions and the opposition. So um, what was the highlight this week? Um, considering, of course, we've got this massive conference going on in Dubai with 70,000 delegates um, and a whole bunch of panel sessions. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, I think the real highlight, and most people probably would have heard about it by now, was the um, was the panel where there was that interaction between Mary Robinson um, and the president of COP28, Al Jaber. Um, this was just, you know... What it include? There were. There's been a whole lot of questions that everybody has had in their minds about this COP, um, and Mary Robinson just very clearly and um, calmly asked them of the president, and he had and a big meltdown. Yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> it was like, "Tell us what you really think." Yeah, <laughs> it's um, the first time in a long time that we've really heard, you know, the that come out from from this kind of conference, what what the real agenda is and what the real thinking is. Yeah, I get the sense that this COP is really one in which some sunlight was applied to a whole bunch of arguments to show that they're bullshit and that um, when you do ask the right questions and um, apply the right data, you, you can uh, apply some pressure and get some things done. Um uh, and of course, the reason that this is also sort of um, topical and has hit a chord is that the Sultan um, Ahmed El Jabbar is, of course, the CEO of ADNOC, the um, uh, UAE's oil and gas state-owned giant. We've learnt before um, this week's story that uh, he was doing, trying to do oil and gas deals while doing the pre-negotiations for COP28 with a whole bunch of people who, of course, are all trying to reduce climate emissions. And, um, and so when he was asked those obvious questions, the sorts of questions that, as you say, um, haven't been asked before, it's a bit like one of those... Um, uh, emperor has no clothes moments, you know, when the when the kid stands up and points at the emperor and says, hey, everybody, you can see it, I can see it, but actually he's not wearing any clothes. <laughs> yeah, I think for me that has been the defining characteristic of this COP mm. this year is that these COPs, there's always um, a lot of bullshit and there's always a lot of people getting together who have their own agendas and their own narrative about what the problem is and what the solution ought to be. Um, and you've got some people there who are trying to get the best solutions for the good of mankind, and there's a whole lot of other people there that are just trying to get the solution that works for them and their organisation and their company. And so, you know, you know that's, a, that's a potent mix for getting a whole lot of, of bull coming out of it. Um, and, and, and occasionally a few good solutions. But, but this year is the first time where I've really felt like a lot of those 
um, con- strong contending narratives that aren't actually good for the planet have been called out, um, and that I have found, you know, quite refreshing. Mm. So um, Sultan um, Al-Jabbar came out with this line when asked, you know, what are you doing to reduce your fossil fuels um, emissions? And uh, when are you going to phase out fossil fuels? He basically slapped back with, oh, well, um, we can't do that because we'll all stay, have to start living in caves. And and also um, he basically said that um, he didn't believe it was required to re- phase out fossil fuel use to get to one and a half degrees. A couple of those yeah. um, tropes were uh, trotted out in full. Yeah, and that you know, and that has been an underlying tension at this COP is the idea that um, you know some people are saying, well, we have to phase out completely fossil fuels by you know twenty fifty at the latest, um, and and other people are saying, no, no, we can, we need fossil fuels in order to um, build the transition, basically, and we need to keep using fossil fuels, but we can abate them with. Um, carbon capture and storage technology, for instance, and then we can keep using them. Um, and that is obviously the line that is coming from those countries that are producer countries of oil and gas. They want to be able to keep keep doing that for, for as long as the oil and gas is still flowing. Um, they want to keep selling it. And we already know from previous conversations that of the top 20 oil and gas producing countries in the world, not a single one of them has committed to actually phasing out um, their oil and gas production, and so that is that is the narrative that is is the crux point of this COP: is are we going to phase down or are we going to phase out? Um, and so, you know that 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 got um, his statements came out as clearly as they did about what he actually thinks um, mm. is very interesting. And he did bring out that that old trope that climate action equals reverting to living in caves, um, which is clearly untrue, um, but it actually means that once it's on the table, we can actually address it. Mm. And you cite some interesting research in your weekly wrap-up email that goes out with this podcast uh, showing that um, if we were to eliminate poverty, and this is one of the other arguments you often hear from uh, those in favour of continuing on to produce fossil fuels and burn them, is that, well, we if you do if you do that if you remove fossil fuel use you essentially stop a big chunk of the world from uh, developing their economies and therefore being pulled out of poverty but it turns out uh, that's not the case what have you learned yeah so there there is this tension between you know we know that there are parts of the world where in order for people to meet a minimum uh, um, livability standard that that those countries need to continue to develop and grow. Um, what this study found out is that if you wanted to eliminate extreme poverty in the world, it, w- it would have only a marginal effect on glo- global greenhouse gases. So they're saying it would raise emissions by less than 5% by 2050, and that even that number, that 5%, that can be reduced by a factor of 10 if you apply really climate-smart approaches to growth um, by uh focusing more on inequality um, and on the distributive functions um, and by using improved technologies, um, probably for clean fuel, for instance, um, if those are introduced. So that that kind of kills that claim that you can't have um, 
development, sustainable development and climate action, you very much can and there are the studies there to prove it. And actually, you may be able to reduce poverty even faster by, for example, using solar power, uh, which doesn't rely on the sort of very uh, investment-intensive network creation that you previously had to do when you were whacking up huge hydro dams and um, having lines flying all over the the country. That's right. There's a really small-scale solar to you know charge mobile phones and allow people to trade with each other or. Um, yeah, be able to you know, run schools and hospitals and those sorts of things. Yeah, there's a really strong argument for more distributed energy types rather than f- for huge infrastructure. And that also has a lot of benefits in terms of what it does at the community level in terms of enhancing resilience and and um, providing employment and, um, uh, you know, just enhancing community, how they work together. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of strong arguments for that kind of approach rather than the big um, mega infrastructure approach. Mm. So elsewhere at um, COP28, uh, as an aside, um, New Zealand was picked out as the fossil of the day uh, one day during COP because of, of its uh, decision under the new government to reverse the ban on oil and gas exploration, which rightly um, uh, a bunch of the Pacific countries at COP28 also called out, which is which is uh, um, uh, interesting to see. But um, the other big thing that's sort of come out at COP28 is increasing ways in which the hygiene of sunlight, i.e. better data to um, expose where the methane and the carbon dioxide and the nitrous oxide are coming from has become more available. Uh, Can you tell us about that? Yeah, this has been a really interesting um, you know, event. So we've been talking for the last few years about how um, things like satellite data can really um, improve accountability. So you can really get a clear sense of where actions are happening or not happening and, and report on them and that that will um, help to improve the way we get things done. And the way I'd put this is, we, you know, the, the way that we've organised um, the UN agreement, the Paris Agreement and the and the events that come after that it's all based on voluntary actions and the only way that you can really and there's no teeth in it you can't there's no you know punishment for people if they don't meet their their you know their targets or whatever the only way that you can really create accountability is by having transparency Um, and that's the sunshine thing of being able to call people out when they're not not doing the thing that they agreed they were going to do Um, and there's always been quite a few holes in that Um, and uh, What's happened this year in particular um, is, so there's been a um, a big dump of data that came from an organisation that was co-founded by Al Gore. Um, and what they're doing is, uh, you know, they're using satellite technology combined with AI to, um, to get a re- really high degree of accuracy um, around sources of emissions, so point sources of emissions around the world. And what they've uncovered, covered in the process is a whole lot of discrepancies between countries and companies reporting of emissions and what's actually happening. Um, And my bet is that that's had a lot to do with where the recent methane agreements have come from um, 
at, at this COP. So I think what's happened is, um, you know, we've had voluntary agreements before where they've said, oh, we're going to stop doing as much flaring and we're going to pin down the leaks and, and so on. And then nothing much has happened. Um, and what this new data is doing is it's actually going to, it, it's still they're still bringing online some of the new technologies, but what it's going to be able to do is show exactly where these leaks are happening. It's going to show exactly where the flaring is happening. It's going to get really finger pointy. Um, yeah. And I think that that's brought a few people to the table to make commitments that they otherwise wouldn't have. Um, and I think that this has been particularly potent for America because their whole um, – uh, investment in, in gas and in LNG gas, natural gas, has been based on this narrative that it's a bridging fuel to help get get you off coal. Um, and that depends very much on the amount of leakage that you get from their pipelines and all this sort of thing. And there, there's been a bu bunch of different studies over the last few years that have sampled that and looked at different places and sort of had, had come out with different um, stories about just just how much leakage is going on, and at the most extreme level of, uh, you know, quite a, if, if if for instance you get any leakage that's over say three percent of production, then that makes natural gas um, more polluting than coal, basically mm. than burning coal. So that completely destroys the narrative about natural gas as a bridging fuel. Um, so I think that they would have had a particular amount of um, of concern about just what all the satellite data was going to show um, and a particular motivation to want to um, to get busy uh, repairing those leaks and making sure that their narrative can still hold water um, in the future. So I think that that has really brought them, them to the table in terms of trying to address that very seriously um, along with some other ones. There's also been um, some revelations about about the amount, the degree to which the UAE is flaring um, natural gas from their production facilities. Um, they made a commitment a few years ago to reduce this by, you know, 30% by 2030 kind of a thing. And then since then, there's been a lot of signs that they've continued to flare on a pretty much everyday basis. Um, so all of these sort of things being, being pinpointed by the satellite data and, and really um, showing where the, the lies are happening, um, that's really making pe people, you know, want to make some commitments, which is, which yeah. is good. And it's not just gas either. Um, although individual cows can't be uh, pinpointed by the satellites, uh, certainly they can work out, uh, you know, how much methane is coming out of South Canterbury or the Waikato. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really interesting to go and have a look at um, what what this great um, new program that's come out um, from Climate Trace. It's called, and we've we, we've included a link to it um, in the in the text that goes with this podcast. Um, it's a really really user friendly platform where you can. Um, zero in on particular areas or countries and you can zero in on particular types of greenhouse gases and you can see where the big point sources are in your area. Um, so it's just really user-friendly and it's really available to everybody to, to really go and have a look and see where these greenhouse gases are coming from and what's going on. It's a little bit still at this point, it, it's, you know, for New Zealand in particular, because so much of our greenhouse gases come from um, 
pasture-based um, agriculture, it, it can't pinpoint a source as small as an individual cow or sheep, of course. Um, it is able to show um, big confined animal um, you know, uh, feeding lots, for instance. If you've got a particularly big feedlot, it might be able to show up that as a point source of, of methane, but it's not going to be able to show it on uh, a, a, a really pasteurised farming base level. Um, at the moment, they do have numbers in there for uh, methane in New Zealand, but I'm not quite sure where that data is coming from, whether it comes from satellite data or or, temperature, or whether they're combining databases to get it in there. I'm not 100% sure. Yes, yeah, so um, AI can do some good things, and so can all those satellites flying around um, above us. Um, just finally, uh, this week back in New Zealand, um, we've seen the final uh, emissions trading scheme auction of government credits fail. Uh, f- this is the fourth failure of an auction. Uh, it started when the last government, uh, before Christmas last year, uh, decided to effectively intervene, uh, not take the advice of the Climate Commission, and um, essentially say that they would um, flood the market with credits to avoid a rise in the petrol price. Uh, that destroyed confidence in the market and people have pulled out ever since then worrying that uh, if they bought credits and stored them uh, then uh, and they needed them at a later date the value would actually drop so this has um, caused quite a, a big stink so to speak in the climate um, uh, communities the those who need uh, credits um, and uh, what's the What's the prospects here for the emissions trading scheme, and in particular, the area of uh, uh, claiming credits after planting some pine forests, which, by the way, we, I think we're the only emissions trading scheme in the world that allows that at the moment? Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it, it is quite com- complicated the way the whole thing works, but I think what this whole thing over the last year has shown us is just how many um, credits that um that uh, organisations had in the back. So they were obviously storing a lot of credits um, that they weren't using as insurance against the day when the the carbon credit price went up. Um, And I guess now there's a little less confidence that the government will allow the price to go up so that they can then use those stored credits. Um, So some would argue that this is a good thing. It's cleared out some of those um, stocks of carbon credits that were floating around uh, and will enable the the whole system to work the way it's supposed to um, a little more cleanly in the future. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, it's also showing, though, that the confidence um, has not quite been restored and that there's a little bit of uncertainty about how the government is going to behave in the future um, when the prices start rising quite a bit and it starts to have an impact on things like cost of living. Because um, that's so the worry it, here. This is the worry for the government is that by um, seeing these auctions fail, uh, there's the potential that if it doesn't change anything, then... Um, with fewer credits on the market, in theory, the price could rise. In fact, this is the argument that James Shaw put across was uh, failure of the auctions wasn't the end of the world because it actually reduced the number of credits in the market and it was likely to push up the price next year. 
Of course, if you're the government elected on a cost of living um, pl- uh, platform, um, then you may not want to allow the, the carbon price to sprint up towards $100. And it has risen from its lows this year to yeah. in the open market, in the secondary market to $70 or so. And um, this is one of the sort of um, conundrums for what you'd call the, the libertarian right approach to the emissions trading scheme, which says don't have government intervene with regulations, just uh, let it rip. Let the market rip, let a price discovery mechanism happen. And if it happens to be a very high carbon price, well, so be it. Uh, Sorry, I think what the policy experts in this area would suggest to government is that there are other ways to to handle um, the cost of living issues when the price goes that high and that they ought to be more targeted forms of support for lower-income households, we, for instance, the price of gas goes really high rather than intervening in the emissions trading scheme. So that's kind of the the theory behind what they would suggest the government ought to do instead. Um, but targeted support for low-income households is not kind of a thing that looks to be particularly high on this government's <laughs> agenda. That's right. So we'll watch this space both on the um, – uh, the point of view of what it does next uh, with uh, auctions in future years, but also um, what it does with the forestry credits, and that's still up and up in the air very much. And we'll, yeah. we'll see a bit more, I suppose you could call it expert advice, uh, coming soon from uh, the Climate Commission, um, potentially as early as the next week or two. Is that right? Yeah, there is a, a report due um looking at the next emissions reduction budget and and you know giving some advice to government on on how to go about um, achieving that budget that's already been set so yeah I think it is going to be really interesting and particularly as you say around the issue of pine forestry because this government has come in saying that they're going to put some limits on the amount of land that can be converted into pine forestry that's a direct intervention in the way that the um, emissions trading scheme currently works. Um, so, you know, it's just going to be really interesting to see how they decide to play that out in terms of how they set the budgets and how the policy, get, you know, whether they change anything around the policy settings for the emissions trading scheme and so on. Fantastic. Catherine, thank you very much for um, that weekly wrap of uh, the news and the detail in the climate scene. Um, uh, you're coming in to, to join us on the the Hoon later today, and we'll uh, we'll talk about a few things uh, happening there, including um, some of the things we've talked about here. Uh, and all paying subscribers are welcome to to join us on the Hoon. But this particular podcast and your weekly wrap up, which is attached to this podcast, is available to all subscribers and um, is part of our public interest journalism mission. And it's it's great that you're able to do this. Um, thank you very much. Nā mihi nui, Catherine. Great. See you all later on.